story makers. I'm Angie oh. Powers. Beth Bandit Powers. And I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is, is Storymakers story Show. And today on Storymakers Show, we're going to talk about the differences between fiction and nonfiction and some of the similarities. It's going to be hot and fast. And so just to be clear, we're not talking about the difference between facts. And fiction. No, no, we've already, or, we've already had a four-year master class in that, and now we're going to move on all right. to what are you working on? Well, I am working on getting prepped to go back in the classroom. I am really excited to see everybody. I feel very lucky. You're not really going to be in the classroom. You're really going to be I'm going to be outdoors next the to the classroom. <laughs> but that was because I asked for that. So it's not like... It's so great. Yeah. It's the best possible thing. So I feel very lucky about that. And um, mm. I am really thinking about just, you know, capturing ideas. That's I, actually kind of the thing I'm thinking about these days. I have a quick filmmaker question. Sure. You. So you've been teaching on Zoom, uh-huh. which is a, not quite a film medium, but mm-hmm. it's a video medium, mm-hmm. uh, improvisational and live. But It's um, audio visual. Uh, and now you're going to be in person, kind of a mm-hmm. theatrical yes. medium. Or yes. I guess it, it's also real life, but, <laughs> but what is that? Um, any thoughts on changing mediums? Well, I think Ian McKellen said it best when he <laughs> was on the Dick Cavett show explaining <laughs> the difference between film acting and stage acting. And of course, film acting is limited to the director's vision. What the director focuses on or asks the cinematographer to focus on is what the viewer gets. But when you are acting in a stage production, the full body is part of the uh, communication that the audience is getting about how the character is feeling and that sort of thing. So in a nutshell... But Ian McEwen's a novel. I said McKellen. Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't say sir. I think that was, that was what threw you off. Sir Ian McKellen um, basically has this great interview with, with Dick Cavett and talks about those, those differences of being in, per, you know, in and, and actually um, Michael Caine, and we've talked about that, also has a great conversation this about... This podcast should be about that. So anyway, and then but in a nutshell, like being present with the students, it's a, it's a great thing because the truth is, it's actually the inverse. So with Zoom, you know, we're limited to what they're willing to share, which is very directorial, very filmic, very cinema. Well, and one of the things that, um, who did you just mention? Michael Caine. Yes. Michael Caine talks about like subtle, subtle, like eye acting. And oh eye my gosh, yes. And if your camera's off, it's really hard to do the subtle eye acting. Excuse my chair. But yes, but in the converse, right, of that, is that when we get back in person, I can see when a kid's tremoring a foot, when right. a kid's tapping on a You desk. won't see their lower face. I won't see their lower face, but, but as Sir Ian has suggested, the whole body communicates information. So It really does. Uh, in the challenge for the actor, then, for the performance, is to inhabit your whole body when you're performing. And for the student, I think it's to you know, just be present. And for the teacher is to notice, you know, what's happening in the whole body of the student in the sense of how they're being present in this new space. And Zoom prevents that, absolutely prevents that. A whole that. student, like, an, like educating the whole student. Yeah, I mean, I just I have to say, like, I see kids in, in the classroom. Uh, well, I haven't for a year. <laughs> 
But when you are in the classroom with the classroom, but when you are with kids in the classroom, you can really just, there's so many dynamics. There's a whole series of performances for which you are not the audience. They are performing for each other. Absolutely. But it gives you a lot of information about where they are socially, where they, what they're comfortable with, where they're going to like, uh, you could almost say like, oh, this kid right now is going to make that joke to avoid that conversation. And you can see it, right? So. I love it. Hope that answered your question. It really did. Um, well, I am working on deciding my next project. And I, I was given an assignment. And I just, oh, it's so delightful to be given an assignment. Um, and I was given an assignment to take two full weeks to come up with what my next project is and I'm in the middle of that and that requires a great deal of patience so how's that going (laughs) well it's funny because you know I did I sort of dilly-dallied around and you know also I got sick and just did different things and you know life and whatever and then um I uh and then I thought oh no I'm not doing it and then I you know I did a bunch of writing and and then I like thought, okay, this is what I want to do. And then I thought, oh, I, I can't decide yet. And that was delightful too. It was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting to articulate things to myself about it, but it was wonderful to like put the brakes on and be like, okay, that's what you're thinking right now, but that's not what you've landed on. I mean, that's a practice in itself. Yeah. I think you're suggesting that I jump to conclusions about myself frequently. Actually, no, I think everybody... Uh, has this desire to be certain and it's not really that anyone in particular is unique in the way they want that, (laughs) you know? So. All right. You ready for our topic? Yeah. Lay it on me. What are are we talking about today? um, This is somebody talking about craft class and she says, I love the way you intersperse nonfiction with fiction in terms of examples. And that is because I have people writing in both genres and of course they inform each other beautifully. And she says it would be also interesting to discuss more how fiction slash nonfiction differentiate and overlap in terms of technique, character development, and ways exceptional writers make use of both techniques. Thanks. So obviously this is like a huge topic and I will try to weave it more into craft class, but that topic came to to my attention and then we watched Nomadland, Mm -hmm. which is sort of in a way, blurring the lines between fiction and nonfiction, um, not necessarily successfully, according to some people. So I thought that would maybe be a way in to talking about fiction and nonfiction and the expectations of the two and the ways they can cross and speak to each other and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if you want to start with Nomadland or start with your gut reaction to the topic of fiction and nonfiction differentiation and overlap well i think it i mean there's so much overlap between uh creative nonfiction. so when we talk about nonfiction, what are we talking about here because there's different strategies for different kinds of nonfiction, right if i'm writing a statistical meta-analysis of <laughs> a variety of you know SARS viruses, right? Just say. Just hypothetically. (laughs) So let's say like that's what I'm looking at. Like that's nonfiction, but the strategies I'm using are going to be completely based on who I'm communicating with and what I'm trying to communicate, right? I even think coming up with a hypothetical had a little hook built into it that it might not have like 
in the same way a couple of years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yes. So, and there, I mean, one of the things that I think is most interesting is the difference in expectations. So, you know, there's the whole sort of show, don't tell thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is morphing in interesting ways as sort of television begins to dominate storytelling um, and, and even very literary storytelling. I think that the novel and prose has taken up um, kind of more space in the areas where visual storytelling can't work. So more, mm-hmm. more space in interiority and even in essayistic telling, even, even in fiction, you know what I mean? That, that there are things you can do on the page that have to do with telling um, or thinking or all of those things, describing an emotional state, which yes, an actor can do brilliantly with the lifting of an eyebrow, but, um, but is not going to be able to be examined in that same way. So I think, I guess what I'm saying is I think some of the the kind of contours are morphing. Okay. But, um, well, let's then, if, if, if the contours are morphing, let's us define our terms. Okay. So when we talk about what are the strategies of nonfiction and fiction, and we talk about blurring, so let's pretend there's no blurring. Okay. Let's just say yeah. this never happens over here. Right. Okay. And we know that it does, right? right. So I'm not we're saying just, in yes, reality This is happens. a fictional exercise. This is a fictional exercise. What are the things right. that are being blurred? So, well, so the idea, the idea with sort of rigid or strict nonfiction is that it's um, true and always true. And so um, the... Bandit disagrees with your assessment. <laughs> the kinds of things people debate, or they used to back in the day in like nonfiction programs, are things like maybe don't put put dialogue in quotes if you don't remember it verbatim. Um, maybe don't even include it at all if you don't remember it verbatim. Um, you know, so uh, you know th- you have to sort of you can't. Um, take some some kind of generalized memory and make okay, it specific so or vice versa. Nonfiction has to be documentable. Mm-hmm. It has to be absolutely true within the context of verifiable fact. Mm-hmm. So I do know that there's a shift, right? So there's creative nonfiction, which might, which might look at the sort of emotional truth of something. But what we're talking about is in, in these broad strokes, defining yeah. this is this and this is not this. We're so, saying well, I mean, you okay. have to be I able mean, to say, like, like James Frey, I have to be able to tell you exactly how long I was in jail. Right. And you can't say, you know, uh, this, this story would be better if it went this way. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is, if we're going to say the truth, uh, but the truth, you know, the, the people, of course, for all, in all, you know, for all time have said, this is what happened to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the interest of making a better story, they fictionalize. I don't. <laughs> their experience or hyperbolize, you know, they exaggerate, they skip things for sure. And that's a, like blatantly allowed in nonfiction, right? Is, is the, so the difference between not including mm-hmm. and outright lying. Yeah. 
omission. But I mean, I, I think you could argue, I think some people would argue that certain omissions are not allowed. So obviously in journalism, for example, if somebody has a connection to a subject, um, they have to own it, you know, they, or the newspaper or the magazine has to say, you know, okay, we're talking about this company, we're owned by that company, or we invest in that company or whatever, right? So um, somebody's doing a profile of a brilliant director, they have to say, you know, this person is also my mother, um, right? <laughs> so- and what's interesting, I think, is that we don't actually find it an egregious error if someone is saying this is fiction, and it's kind of based on our life. Well, right? and there's this whole, there's all these genres now, like um, auto fiction and, and, and then there's sort of, but there is like a criticism, for example, of auto fiction sounds like, well, I'm probably is meant to, <laughs> if it kind of is. Um, okay. Pandemic moment, uh, Swedish, uh, my struggle. Yes. Thank you. Carl Ova Nausgaard. Okay, that's totally an edited fictional moment. <laughs> Angie's like, do you want to sound smart or should I sound smart? <laughs> but now I'm just owning it. Okay, editing is really helpful. But yes. that is the truth. That is who he is. Um, so, and I haven't actually read the books, although I've read little pieces by him. But in any case, he was also criticized for writing kind of you know, ploddingly through the years of his life. Although, I mean, I think his wife left him and everybody's mad at him. Anyway, fascinating stuff in the world of autofiction. Autoerotic fiction. All right. <laughs> Asphy- so- autoerotic asphyxiation. <clears throat> yes. So just to get our terms clear. So when we talk about nonfiction, we're not talking about creative nonfiction, or are we? No, I think we are, but I think that even in creative nonfiction, those are the conversations that people have to have. They have to make choices about how they are massaging their, you know, their texts, their memories, the whole thing. You have to be very careful about what you <laughs> massage. Absolutely. <laughs> and in fiction, you get to do whatever you want, including just blatantly tell I your whole know. life story. No, because you were lightly scarred by someone capping on your weather in Yes, there was somebody who wrote a review of Shy Girl, not that I remember bad reviews for decades, but um, who said, you know, this weather is really unrealistic and it is supposed to be a heat wave, but you know, people don't read closely. And that review came out, like got reprinted several prides during heat waves. It was always satisfying to me that it was always like incredibly hot in San Francisco whenever it's it came 95 out. degrees in San, San Francisco. Francisco. It's like, and we're going to reprint this thing that says this San Francisco never gets this hot. I was mm. just prescient. But what I'm saying is it was a climate, context, it was a nod to the climate change that nobody wanted to acknowledge. It's true. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. But even within the context of fiction, right, there are limits to what we're willing to oh do. Oh my gosh. And the, the, the same reviewer, not again, that I remember this by heart decades later, but um, they're little scars. Was was um, was sort of said that um, that that somebody growing up in the Bay Area in the seventies like would not be excited, like a young lesbian growing up in the Bay Area in the seventies would not be excited to see like a butch femme couple you know, that showed her who she could grow up to be because, you know, I don't know, you're just surrounded well, by because, queerness. No, because I think in the seventies, everybody was more Mindy. Like it was <laughs> this like fantasy moment where if like we were all wearing rainbow suspenders, then, you know, gender equality has happened. And so I think that person was trying to say, well, if you grew up in the seventies and we all had the same haircut and suspenders, 
wasn't that equality. Wasn't and that you were enough. Right. And I, I just feel like I, as somebody who was hanging out in Berkeley in the 70s and 80s, I can say no. So here's the thing. We're having this question, this kind of this, this base question, which we can't even, and I think it's... No, okay. Defining... Well, we're talking, at least we're talking about territories. Right. And I, but I think that's important, that it's not easy to simply say, this is nonfiction, this is fiction. So between nonfiction and fiction is some friction. I could just like splice your facial expression <laughs> in right there. I know I look a little betrayed, don't I? Oh, um, yes. You're like, We're, I need some more wine. Yes, I am thinking that. Uh, so great. So we've got some friction between our non and fiction. <laughs> Is so, that better? Did that do? Is that better? No, I think you said it nicely. Mm. So. But I think it's interesting. It's not easy to come to terms with what the differences are. And I think that the, re- the, thing I, the reason I want to point that out is because, uh, you know, there are strategies we talk about across both. Uh, at the same time, I think it really, for me, would probably say it boils down to something kind of vulgar, which is your audience and what you're trying to actually communicate. Is your audience vulgar? Not your, no, Wait, but, I, but I think there's a way in which we like to pretend that working and thinking about what you want to communicate to a people is somehow less noble than writing for your own vision of like, yeah. truth. Like a grocery list. Right. So I just want to say I, I came up with this just now, so I want to say it out loud and see what you mm-hmm. think. Maybe fiction is life masquerading as art and nonfiction is art masquerading as life. (laughs) That was Angie trying not to laugh and veiling. (laughs) Okay. Tomorrow we're not going to be locked in our house. I know. I know it's very exciting, but tell me like what, what does that even mean? Like, how is art masquerading as life? Well, I mean, fic- because nonfiction, you are actually creating something. You're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zero in on this. I'm going to juxtapose it with this. I'm going to build to this. I'm going to conclude with this. Or that is definitely... So then I think the apex of nonfiction work is the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Okay. Right? Say more. Because we have this... That you're talking about art masquerading as life. So do you think the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are art masquerading as life or life masquerading as art? Well, this is, it's interesting you bring the sisters up because as you know, I've been trying really hard to say in this book of mine that some of these controversies about you know, fiction, nonfiction, no fiction masquerading as nonfiction, <laughs> displace a queer necessity mm. to shape our own autobiographies, sometimes using terms that are outside what the mainstream considers true. Okay. Yeah. So let's just take a quick moment. And I, I think that's important. I don't want to yeah. pass over it. And uh, 
holiday pun. Passover. Mm. So the idea that I just wanted to explore in our last little chunk of time here is that there are tools, right? And so I think really what the person was asking was (laughs) not our 800 opinions, (laughs) not our 800 opinions, but what are the tools of each and how can they inform? All right, let's each put out a few. Okay. All right. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? You can start. All right. So here's... So nonfiction will often do the work of situating something so that we can see it in its historical context. We can see it in its uh, geographical context Mm -hmm. or even its geological context. And I think that fiction can use those techniques as well in really interesting ways. I think Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides uh, brings in a sweep of history Mm -hmm. and even to some extent um, biology, although I don't love all his conclusions. Um, about intersex and biology, but I think, but he brings in these kind of non-fictional sweeps of information and depth of examination that I think can be really interesting that we obviously care to read about in nonfiction and why not read about them in fiction? And I would argue nonfiction always has a point of view, mm. even though we pretend it doesn't. And that's the thing that's kind of hard. We we well, read these journalism. wonderful. Well, no, we we read these wonderful biographies of presidents and and you know great leaders throughout history, and there is an embedded yeah. point of view. There's an embedded kind of goal, right? So even if it's like something wonderful, like the Hamilton musical, and we're gonna upend these ideas about the founders of our country, the truth is there's a lot that's really it's impossible to write those stories without having some perspective on on the choices those people made and and what it means for now because the truth is you never write history for oh here's really what happened you always write history to either challenge our contemporary sense or to reinforce it like i think there's just um that's what history does. And so and fiction so, might adopt right. a, a more of an awareness of the so, stakes of making a particular claim. Or. So I think there's an argument to be made for understanding the context, right? So we often will see things like, and I did this myself as I was reading about the First World War, and, and I'm writing a fiction piece in this context, uh, but I don't think it has to be limited to historical fiction, but in this context, yeah, that's that what I mean. Was. I did a bunch of research. I was a reasonably well-educated person before I went on that particular jaunt, but I had no idea, really, with a history degree, how diverse the participants of the First World War were, or the dynamics. Even in the European theater, per se, or even that sort of thing. Especially in the European theater. We have people being brought in from the you know, colonies, right? We have Americans bringing their segregation with them in in a way that wasn't even like accurate to the rest of the European theater. So there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of story there. But if I'm a person who wants to say, hey, what we thought we knew about the First World War and the people who actually made differences, uh, is wrong if it, that's going to be like a place I start from, and I think all historical work is going to do that. It's well, going to challenge or reinforce. 
Right. It, you know, what's interesting too is um, that both Colson Whitehead and Tanessie Coates written about the Underground Railroad with mm-hmm. a really like imaginative, yeah, magical realism. S- sort of magical realism spin on it. And I think um, that partly has to do with the inadequacies of the given, known, established history and who mm. gets to you know, who gets to be in charge of that history and who gets to tell it and who gets to own it and who gets to Well, we can do this on another it. podcast, but I think there's something really powerful about metaphor. And the truth is, if you're trying to communicate something across understandings, and let's face it, not everybody has the same understanding about the importance or the representation of the Underground Railroad, what are the metaphors that are actually going to transcend the event itself? So... Um, which you can't do in nonfiction, right? If I'm, if I'm alleging that I'm doing nonfiction, then saying that my metaphor of the Underground Railroad being an actual railroad, and I've got characters mm. that I've followed from uh, slavery into, you know, these Yeah, and like really different sort of caverns and, and, right, where industrial where, right? so sort of landscapes. If I'm doing so. that, I can do that in fiction in a way that I can't in nonfiction, right? Because I'm alleging this is true. What is interesting then in turn in nonfiction is that you could, you can of course use metaphors as long as you're openly acknowledging that they're metaphors and you could be more deft. You could actually use them as a strategy. Mm-hmm. So, so that's something I think you could borrow from fiction, situating it differently, mm-hmm. but still um, having that effect of opening up new w- ways of understanding the right. content. Yeah. So um, in terms of, you know, the other thing is that fiction, of course, is is brilliant at, um, and, and I suppose nonfiction too, but I think that I think of it as a fictional technique as sort of immersing people in a world, in the specificity of a world. And I think sometimes nonfiction will, will adopt those techniques, um, but sometimes they'll keep them more generalized because they can't say precisely what was true in a given moment because they weren't there. They don't have Again, the notes Yeah, on and I that. think what the, what's, what's problematic is trying to figure out what nonfiction specifically means. Well, what it's allowed to do. I mean, journalism, I think, is becoming so, yeah. more and more op-ed because it's what grabs people's attention because everybody's no, 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 coming no, from social bait, media and blah, blah, blah. At so the same time, there are real conversations that have happened on the, you know, the floor of our Congress, right? These, the Senate floor, the House floor. Important conversations and that have been dramatized in film, but all of those all have a perspective and a and a belief. So the only thing that I think is different, really, because I think journalism is a different animal. I would not call journalism actual journalism. Um, Certainly not creative nonfiction. Yeah, it wouldn't hopefully. be that kind of. Right? <laughs> And I think, you know, one of the things we criticized journalism for in the past four years was, you know, you got caught and, and how can you not get caught in this idea of I'm, I'm going to be objective. Well, I think what we've learned is there's no such well, thing as objectivity. The thing of like balance, the idea of being balanced when, when, you're, when, when the two sides are like utterly skewed, right? Yeah. So there's no, there's no balance Freaking there. insane. Yeah. And, you know, like not that great. <laughs> These are our choices, right? And you're like, oh, well, here's what balance looked like. Oh my God. I'm sorry. And then that reminds me of a quote, but it's by Woody Allen. Oh. <laughs> but I'll just say it. I'll just say it. Okay. Which is in one of his things, he says that, you know, we've come to the crossroads of, of like despair 
like one one road leads to destruction and the other to despair and utter hopelessness. May we have the wisdom to choose wisely. <laughs> Something like that. I'm misquoting, yeah. but you know. Yeah. That's that might be a that might be a stance. So if, if, if I'm a fiction one. writer and I'm wanting to look for the things that make compelling nonfiction as a part of my tool set, the thing that I would actually look at is how do you look at research to begin with? So uh how do you know what you know, especially if you're writing about even this time period? What are the things that have led up to the context you're writing about? That's a lot of work. And a lot of us you're don't. You're saying for f- fiction? For fiction writers. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is, is like, uh, I, I grew up in Sonoma County, okay? Here we are, and we're in Sonoma County, and I'm in, I'm in this place. I have a and historical perspective because I've been here. But if I were writing about this space as someone who was not from here, the truth is uh, there are real histories about um, Chinese immigrants, about Mexican-American immigrants, about um, German and European immigrants. There's uh, relationships that happen, dynamics that develop into the world we have now. So I'm writing about now, but I don't know anything that came before now, I'm not, I'm doing a disservice to myself and to my readers because I'm, I'm pretending that there's a static nature to, to this world. You're and like, it isn't. was, it was 1975. There were vineyards all over Sonoma County. Right. You're like, no. Right. But I mean, like, Apple even orchards. if you go back, if you go back to the night, late 19th or 20th century, Sebastopol had a, Chinese communicate community that was part of what was happening in this town. Where, where now we have a CVS. Where now we have a CVS. So there's a blindness that can happen. So nonfiction pushes the writer to really look for and pretend we don't have bias, but the truth is at least it pushes you to try and figure out what, what was true about this. And when we write fiction, sometimes when we're writing about a real place or a real time, we think, well, I was there, so I knew enough. Right. And that's research, even of your own experience, I think, is a great tool for fiction writers um, that they can learn from nonfiction. Absolutely. And interviewing people and reading sources and wandering libraries and all those mm, good libraries. things. Libraries. All right. Well, there's clearly much, much more to talk about, but we hope that Are there any will... tools for nonfiction writers? I think we mentioned tools. I mean, I talked about creating scene, immersing, immersing people in a world okay. through kind of the detailed um, beat by beat showing Mm -hmm. that sometimes um, I I mentioned nonfiction is hesitant to do because, you know, we don't know what it was like on that day, but you can, you can say, okay, here, what was the weather like on that day? And then you can, Mm -hmm. you know, flush it out with some details, flush it out, flush it out, flush it out. Flush it out. sounds like (laughs) prey. So like when you're hunting, you flush out the birds. So not my metaphor. Okay. Um, All right. So um, anyway, we welcome your thoughts and questions and just questioning in general. So with that, it's time for... Steal Steal This. this. Amateur Poets Borrow. Professional Poets Steal. What have you come across in your readings and wanderings that you would like to take and make your own? Well, I actually have been doing a lot of listening to this guy. His name is Ali Abdal. And he's got a YouTube channel, but he's also got some Skillshare classes. And I quite like him. 
He is uh, someone who's gone through the Cambridge Medical Program. Like you do. And he does a lot of, you know, talking about learning and, you know, preparing for exams and that sort of thing. He actually overlaps a lot of stuff that Barbara Oakley talks about in her book, A Mind for Numbers. Um, he also talks about another book I love, which is called Make It Stick. So at some point, I'm going to actually execute on all of these mm-hmm. things. But what I want to actually steal from Ali Abdal is this idea that, well, I don't even know if it's him. So the idea is that we have um, this this repetition piece around how you memorize stuff, right? So uh, we have a drop-off, right? There's a precipitous drop-off. The first time you hear something, you lose 90% of it in the first, like, day. And then four days and then a week and then, you know, so they've done a variety of psychological tests. To You're say, saying, you mean with How repetition. quickly do you lo- lose information? So you mm-hmm. learn something and then you lose it. So what I want to actually take is this idea of spaced repetition and in line with what we're talking about today, as I write things, as I'm thinking about things, um, kind of going back and, and really making sure I remember what it is I think I know. Right. And so looking at, um, you know, there's a lot of things. I like to really just pull things straight out of my... And so with this idea, is like, what are the things I want to talk about? And how can I really continue to do a spaced repetition around my understandings? Conversely, if you're hoping that you will not remember this podcast in a few <laughs> days, you probably won't. <laughs> uh, my steal this is The Sea of the Sea by Iris Murdoch. I'm listening to mm. the lengthy and pretty wonderful audiobook and um, the ways in which this actual but surreal seemingly impossible event happens early on and then keeps being echoed in the text in emotional ways i think is just brilliant the things you've described to me actually remind me a lot again of dorothy allison's story about um shannon the fire girl yeah yeah so i think you know the idea which which i actually just did a craft class on at the end of last quarter about sort of a central metaphor Mm -hmm. and developing it through the book i just think that iris murdoch is masterful at that in Mm -hmm. this first half of the sea the sea so that is something that i think it would be very find a great metaphor you guys go out in your day and find a great metaphor for the way you want your world or your stories to go 